Thank you for listening to the AT Tapes, a podcast from the Journal of Athletic Training. The goal of this podcast is to interview researchers and clinicians on current topics facing athletic trainers and discuss how we can utilize best practices to improve patient outcomes. My name is Lizzie Hibbard, and I will be your host for this podcast. Currently, I am a faculty member in the athletic training program at the University of Alabama, and I have a research interest in shoulder and elbow injury prevention in youth overhead athletes. You can follow me on Twitter at E.E. Hibbard. Before getting started on today's episode, I wanted to remind everyone that all content from JAT is open access, meaning it is free of charge to all readers, thanks to funding from the National Athletic Trainers Association. Today's guest is Tim Weston, who co-chaired the writing group for the Inter-Association Consensus Statement on Managing Medications by the Sports Medicine Team. Tim is the head athletic trainer at Colby College in Waterville, Maine. In addition to his administrative duties as head athletic trainer, he's responsible for the medical services of the women's soccer, women's basketball, men's and women's tennis, and men's and women's crew teams. He has also served the profession in a variety of capacities within the Maine Athletic Trainers Association, Eastern Athletic Trainers Association, and the National Athletic Trainers Association, most recently finishing his term as the District 1 Director and the Secretary and Treasurer for the NATA. Tim, thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you today. So let's get started with learning a little bit more about you. Can you start off by giving us a brief overview of your educational background? Yes, I did my undergraduate at the University of Maine at Ornell, and then I went on to do my graduate work and my master's in educational leadership as well at the University of Maine at Ornell. So why did you become an athletic trainer? I really felt like I wanted to assist patients, you know, uh, with recovery from their athletic type injuries. Um, you know, help them return to the competitive level, maybe where they were before, or if they were unable to return to that level, what other options might be available to them, um, and kind of wanted to be that kind of person to really assist them with their medical care and really manage their care and assist them in, in making it move forward for them. So you've had a long career so far, so can you give us some of the highlights of your professional career and experiences that you've had? Well, I was really fortunate to start off in professional baseball. Um, I was I, right out of the University of Maine. I worked for the New York Yankees minor league system. It was a great opportunity. I really enjoyed it a lot. Um, and then I ended up uh, going to work at a secondary school in upstate uh, Albany, New York. Really enjoyed that as well, but really always felt that the collegiate level was where I wanted to be professionally um, and had the opportunity to return to my home state of Maine to work at Colby as a staff athletic trainer. And then uh, several years ago, then become the head athletic trainer here at Colby. So you were the co-chair for the work group that created this inter-association consensus statement on the management of medication by the sports medicine team. How did you become involved with this group and what makes you uniquely qualified to co-chair this group? Well, back in, I would say the spring, summer of 2016, we started to see the rise of, of naloxone being available for usage in secondary schools. And ATs had a lot of questions regarding that and other emergency medications. So we would be referring them to a 2009 managing prescription and, and non-prescription medication document that the NATA, consensus statement that the NATA put forth 
And we felt at that time, or I felt at that time, it was time to update that document. It was a really good starting point. At that time, nothing had been done in this area. Um, so it was really kind of groundbreaking. But it was only a three-page document. Um, and I felt personally that it was time for us to, to update this. So I approached the NATA office. Um, they were like on board. Um, and then uh, we um, moved forward with that, brought that to the board of directors of the NATA. They gave the green light for us to update this consensus statement. Usually within the NATA, 10 years is kind of what I would call, quote unquote, the shelf life for consensus statements, I think, currently. So it was just a good time for us to, to look at this and re-update it. So can you tell us a little bit about the process of actually writing the inter-association consensus statement and who were the involved parties as far as the associations? Yeah, so, so after we got the go-ahead from the board of directors, um, then we decided, okay, what is this going to look like and who are we going to bring on board? Um, the original consensus statement was about three pages, and we, needed, we knew we needed much more in-depth in each of those sections. Particularly when updating the consensus statement, we wanted to address emergency medications, as we just discussed, whether that's EpiPens, uh, inhalers, naloxone, what would that look like, and what would the AT, what would be appropriate for the AT to do in that situation? Um, so we just felt like it, we needed to kind of look at that. Um, I worked closely with Rachel Oates, the Associate Executive Director of the NATA, um, and she put me in touch with Dr. Cindy Chang. Uh, she's a team physician at UC Berkeley and also worked out at the University of California in San Francisco. She was a past president of the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, um, and she worked with a lot of our NATA groups uh, back at that time, and, and we'd done some joint work with her. I reached out to her, and we came up with a plan to, uh, to put together probably about a total of 20 medical professionals within the and then within that 20 professional medical professionals uh, eight of those individuals will be part of the writing group i mean that's kind of how we got started um, we really kind of started calling people reaching out to people we had a lot of um, obviously athletic trainers that were interested that wanted to be part of this which was great but we also wanted to involve pharmacists team physicians uh, someone from the nursing uh, association and someone representing all the major professionals, uh, AT sports societies as well. So we kind of, that's kind of how we put the group together. Um, internally with the NATA, we had representatives from at that time was the college and university AT committee, um, the education committees and the governmental affairs committee. So we really wanted a wide, broad range of individuals involved in developing this inter-association uh, statement. But when we, as we got moved forward, we knew we had to have a core group for the writing group. Um, and as we kind of broke that down, we looked at professionals that we really wanted. We wanted team physicians, we wanted athletic trainers, and we wanted pharmacists on that group. And that's kind of where the writing group kind of came into play. So before really getting started with the discussion about the role of the athletic trainer, I think it's important to define some terminology that you'll be using. So what is some terminology that you have found needs to be defined while discussing medication management? I think a couple of things right off the bat, uh, drug and uh, administering, um, that refers to giving a single dose of medication for immediate use, whereas drug dispensing involves preparing, labeling, and providing multiple doses of medication for future use. I think uh, administering dispensing are key words um, that we highlight throughout the document. It's extremely important. We'll talk a little bit later, I know, about storing and uh, transporting uh, medications as well, but I really think documentation. Uh, appropriate documentation. We really tried to hit that in, in the consensus statement of what is appropriate documentation for both the team physician, the athletic trainer, and other members of the sports medicine team and what that kind of looks like. 
Um, I think um, as part of that, uh, that would include record keeping, what that would look like, the name of the patient, the date, um, and who is doing the administering or who is doing the dispensing as well. So here's the most broad question I will probably ask today, um, but what is the role of the athletic trainer in managing medications for their athletes, and how does this differ between practice settings? I, I think that was one of our major questions that we had to tackle um, when we started to look at this document and how we were going to review it and how we were going to update it. One of the first things we did was, okay, where is the facility that the athletic trainer is working out of or the team physician is working out of? So we really defined a sports medicine facility. Um, that's the primary location where these medications may be stored or kept or administered or dispensed. So we worked to define that first. Um, then the next thing that we talked about a lot uh, and worked on was that the AT should have written policies and procedures in conjunction with the team physician. So the AT and the team physician need to have written policies on how it's going to to either be administered or dispensed, where they're going to be stored, and how that's going to be documented. And I think those key things were really critical. Um, I think you're going to find through my talk today that I'm going to continue to go back to written policies and procedures. That was one thing that we really tried to hammer home in the document itself um, and in all our discussions in and around this, this consensus statement. Um, and those policies and procedures need to be annually reviewed by all members of the sports team, uh, sports medicine team, not just the team physician, not just the athletic trainer, but for everyone um, that's involved. And we kind of define those roles, um, whether it's a student athletic trainer, uh, whether it's a nurse, whether it's another provider, um, whether it's a physical therapist, what that kind of looks like. Um, and also, we talked a lot about how the supervising team physician needs to approve and sign off on these policies and procedures and really needs to work with the, the athletic trainer or the designated head athletic trainer or the director of sports medicine or whoever that might be with, how, with looking at state regulations, state and federal regulations and how that comes into play for them. So I think it's a very broad question, but I think the, the key components are the AT needs to work with their team physician to make sure they have written policies and procedures and are annually checking those and checking those against state and federal regulations regarding medications. So I want to ask a little bit about some of those policies and procedures and some of the things that are important to include in there. So what are some specific requirements for storing over-the-counter medication in the athletic training facility? And how does this differ if you're storing prescription medication, either for your physician as they're coming in or for an individual athlete? Yeah, so we talked about prescription medication. Um, they certainly must be secured at all times in a locked cabinet or in a locked physician's bag that the physician has control of that. And any obviously controlled substances there, again, the physician needs to have them under lock and key. Um, OTC medications or over-the-counter medications can also be stored and need to be stored in a locked cabinet, but it needs to be separate from that prescription medication cabinet. Um, and OTC medications should not be stored with prescription medications at all. Um, they can be in the same secure location uh, within the sports medicine facility, but the AT does not, should not have access to the prescription medications. And we spell that out in the document. Um, and I think there's where an area that the team physician really needs to be responsible for the security of, of particularly prescription medication, whether they're in a travel bag or in a locked cabinet within the facility. We also talk a lot about in the dog about, document about um, climate control, um, where they need to be kept and who has the who has control over those medications and access to those medications as well. 
So I think in the document, you guys do a really good job of talking about all these different work settings that athletic trainers are in. So primarily, we think about medication management from the athletic training facility perspective. Uh, but what about when your facility is a hotel room <laughs> or the plane? And so can you talk about some of the specific considerations for the athletic trainer when they're traveling um, in regards to medication management? Yes, I think, well, you know, here's another area that we really tried to look at best practices and look at what was out there. Um, obviously, it's convenient for the, as you mentioned, for the athletic trainer or the team physician to travel with OTC medication. But we want to caution uh, athletic trainers out there. It may run contrary to federal and state law. So really, to minimize your liability, you need to check um, with not only state regulations where you're going to be, but the state regulations where you're going to be going to um, as well, and federal law as well. I think that's really important. That all needs to be written into your policies and procedures. Um, and then when you're on the road, um, containers for medications should be you know, assessed for security. So here again, prescription medications need to be with the physician in a locked uh, area. Um, we need to you know, make sure that the physician knows what they're traveling with, uh, make sure they have a written formulary um, with them. Um, so we wrote this in mind both for the athletic trainers and the team physicians as well. Um, I think one thing that we looked at is also one thing that kind of came out of this, which was kind of surprised me, that a lot of the best practices indicate that using a local pharmacy. So if I'm in Maine and myself and my team physician are traveling to, like, say, Oregon, uh, Oregon allows authorized physician and providers to phone in prescriptions. That way you don't have to carry the prescriptions to that state. So we also recommend that the team physician ATs look at that, look at the state where you're going, and you may be able to phone that in with the local pharmacy. So when you arrive on site, you have the medications at hand. Um, and I think as far as we talked a lot about international travel, that may require additional steps um, to satisfy those different countries' laws and customs. So you've got to be aware of that as well. I know sometimes the athletic trainer might hold individual prescription medication for an athlete, just either they can't be trusted or just to make sure it gets to where it needs to go. Are there some any concerns with that when the athletic trainer or when the team is traveling? Yes, the athletic trainer should not be holding those medications. Those medications need to be held by the individual patient. Obviously, the athletic trainer should have a written formulary what what is being taken with you know on record what the student athlete has. But the athlete athletic trainer should not be holding those medications. Those need to be held held by the individual patient. So many athletic trainers that. Uh, we, in our profession, serve as preceptors for athletic training programs, or if they're in a high school setting, maybe have established a student aid program. Can athletic training students or student aides be involved in medication management in any capacity, um, or how does that maybe set the athletic trainer up for legal liability? We need to be care very careful here, and this is one area that the original document really didn't cover, and it was one area that we thought that we felt like we really needed to discuss. Student aid, so to speak, um, and I, we have them here at Colby College that just kind of assist with maybe getting water and they're just work study students. They cannot have any contact with any type of medication. Um, they can't be involved in that at all. And we clearly state in that document, uh, administering, dispensing, any type of OTC medications, they should not be involved. Um, as far as non-certified or unlicensed students who are in a curriculum program um, with regards to OTC medications, they may do that. It needs to be under direct uh, supervision. Um, and these guidelines should be outlined in the facilities policies and procedures. And Katie has standards regarding this, and we reference that within the document. So what I would encourage athletic trainers to do is go to the Katie standards, 
take a look at that so you know what the best practices are with regards to athletic training students in curriculum programs as far as uh, administering or dispensing OTC medications. So you've already talked a little bit about documentation, but what are some best practice suggestions for avoiding any legal issues in regards to medication management? I think the biggest thing is having policies and procedures in place. Um, we found, we cited some examples within the document where um, athletic trainers and team physicians uh, got into trouble from a liability standpoint because there were no policies or procedures in place for handling over-the-counter medications or for handling prescription medications. Also, where were they stored? Were they, they were stored in maybe an unlocked or unsafe storage uh, area where maybe uh, patients had access to. So I really think it's extremely important that those policies and procedures are in place. They are airtight. They also follow state and local guidelines and federal guidelines as well. And that they're reviewed annually by not only the team physician and the head athletic trainer or athletic trainer designee, but also the entire sports medicine staff reviews those as well. And I think that's a way that uh, from a liability and legal standpoint, it's extremely important to have that all in place beforehand. So changing gears a little bit, right now we have an opioid crisis within the United States. And while these medications may be used appropriately um, when prescribed um, in a sports medicine setting, there's always potential for misuse, abuse, or dependency to, to develop. So do you have any suggestions for guidance that athletic trainers could give to their patients to help in prevention of misuse or abuse? Yes, we talked about that a bit. I think patient education, particularly with regards to post-operative medication, so working with the team physician, uh, the surgical physicians, um, the AT needs to talk to the patient, make sure they're educated with regarding what kind of medication is going to be given post-surgical. Um, patients need to understand um, you know, that opioids might be used, but we'd only be used for a small window or time frame. And one thing that we found, which I thought was interesting, multiple states have passed legislation or adapted guidelines regarding the prescription of opioid pain medication. So what the physicians can prescribe post-surgical. So I think that's another area that once again, the ATs really need to take charge and work with the patients to know what they're going, what type of medications they're going to be given for pain post-surgical and what that's going to look like and how long they'll be on those medications as well. And what are other options that they might be able to take other than taking an opioid medication? So what are some medications that athletic trainers are typically able to administer in an emergency situation? And do these guidelines differ by state? Typically, uh, we looked at like medications like epinephrine, inhalers, oxygen. Uh, it all differs by state by state. We mentioned in the article and the consensus statement that it's really important that the athletic trainers and team physicians know what is allowed within your state and what are those guidelines moving forward. Obviously, with the opioid crisis, as we just discussed, naloxone has become uh, a major um, player in this as far as an emergency application that many, particularly secondary school athletic trainers, may be involved in doing an emergency administration. So it's extremely important that part of your policies and procedures identify these emergency medications specifically, and then what is the process for administering them? Who's going to handle that? Where that's going to be? Um, it's extremely important to have that included um, within your policies and procedures. And um, I, I think it's, I think one thing that athletic trainers need to know is it's not that they are not allowed to do this. Um, they can do these emergency medications, but they, but it differs from state to state. So you've talked about this several times today and in the document that there's these different guidelines from state to state. 
So where is the best place for athletic trainers to get information about their state or states that they're traveling to to make sure that they are following the state regulations as well as their own policies and procedures? I think the best place to go is to their state website. Um, I did a little bit of research uh, when we were doing this and a lot of the people on the writing group did as well. Like I went to maine.gov. You really have to work to get in there into the state's uh, website, go under state regulations, um, medications, transportation, prescription medications, over-the-counter medications. Look at also your athletic training uh, licensure laws or regulations that you have within your state. Um, one good, couple good resources that we felt where the team physician can assist you in this way, and also a local pharmacist or a pharmacist that you may have available to you, they can really be of great guidance to you because they really need to know, they really know within the state website where to go and where to look, particularly for prescription medications, where to look on the, that, those types of guidance of what that can look like um, and you know how they, they can be managed. I think that's one thing that we, I found really insightful was that the pharmacist really had a good grasp on that and it could really assist you in that process. They can also really assist you with uh, kind of going back to labeling, storage, those type of things, um, and dispensing and discarding uh, outdated medications. So I, so I would really emphasize to try to look, work with a local pharmacist or your pharmacist that you have available on your site uh, for all of that information. I really appreciate your time today and the discussion surrounding this topic. As we finish up this episode, can you provide your take-home message for how clinicians can use this information to improve their clinical practice? I think the two take-home messages I would leave you with is check your state and federal statutes and regulate, uh, regulatory agencies to determine their medication management policies. It's extremely important for both the team physician and the designated athletic trainer to do this on a yearly basis. They must be reviewed. Um, as we talked a little bit about today with the emergence of naloxone as emergency medication and lots of states are enacting emergency applications of naloxone, who's gonna be involved in that? It's extremely important that on an annual basis, those uh, state regulations are reviewed. Also with the states that you're traveling in as well must be reviewed. The second thing I would say is you need to have written policies and procedures. They need to be uh, documented in place regarding over-the-counter medications, controlled substances, prescription medications, and there needs to be established guidelines um, that reference when you're managing these types of medications in the sports medicine facility, what that facility looks like, where they're stored. Um, and then finally, they need to be, the policy procedures need to be annually reviewed. Uh, they need to be gone through with the entire staff, and this review needs to be documented as well. So if anyone comes in and says, okay, are, are you doing this? Are you following your policies? Are you reviewing them? Anyway, yes, we went through them with the entire sports medicine team. Everyone knows them. They're clearly laid out and they're clearly stated. Well, thank you so much for your time and sharing your knowledge with us. We really appreciate uh, the work that you put into the consensus statement and uh, your time today. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I hope you all found this podcast informative and that you can utilize the clinical recommendations to improve patient care. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please follow the Journal of Athletic Training on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at JAT underscore NATA on all three platforms. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us for next month's episode of the AT Tapes. Mm -hmm.